Joshua chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, it says, So this was the lot of the tribe of the children of Judah, according to their families. The border of Edom at the wilderness of Zin, southward was the extreme southern boundary. And their southern border began at the shore of the Salt Sea, or what you and I would call the Dead Sea, from the bay that faces southward. Then it went to the southern side of the ascent of Ak-Rabim, passed along to Zin, ascended on the south side of Kadesh Barnea, passed along to Hetzron, went up to Adar, and then went around to Karka. From there it passed toward Atzmon and went to the brook of Egypt, and the border ended at the sea. This shall be your southern border." The east border was the Salt Sea as far as the mouth of the Jordan. And the border on the northern quarter began at the bay of the sea at the mouth of the Jordan. The border went up to Beth Hoglah and passed north to Beth Arabah. And the border went up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. Then the border went up toward Debir from the valley of Akor, and it turned northward toward Gilgal, which is before the ascent of Adumim, which is on the south side of the valley. The border continued toward the waters of En Shemesh and ended in En Rogel, and the border went up by the valley of the son of Hinnom to the southern slope of the Jebusite city, which is Jerusalem. The border went before the valley of Hinnom, westward, which is toward the valley of Rephaim, northward. Then the border went around from the top of the hill to the fountain of the water of Nephtoah and extended to the cities of Mount Ephron. And the border went around to Baalah, which is Kiriath-Jerim. Then the border went westward toward Baalah to Mount Zaire and then passed to the side of Mount Jerim on the north, which is Kisalon, went down to Beth Shemesh and passed on to Timnah, and the border went out to the side of Ekron northward. Then the border went around to Shikron, passed along to Mount Baalah and extended to Jabneel, and the border ended to the sea. The west border was the coastline of the Great Sea, or the Mediterranean Sea. This is the boundary of the children of Judah, all according to their families. Now, again, you might be wondering, why in the world does the Holy Spirit devote so much time to describing the borders of the inheritance? Remember that the book of Joshua is divided into three basic sections. Entering the land in chapter 1 to chapter 5, conquering the land, chapter 6, to chapter 12, and then the divisions or the allotments of the land in chapter 13. And it's going to be this allotment all the way to chapter 24. Joshua received his instructions from the Lord in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 1 through 29. Concerning Reuben, Moses said, let the tribe of Reuben live and not die out, even though it's a small tribe. And then it says, concerning Judah, Moses said, give them strength to defend their cause, help them against their enemies, Deuteronomy 33, 7. The first allotment is going to go to Judah because they're the, one of the largest tribes and the strongest tribe. 
And so when it's going to give the borders, and James or, or Ben, I don't know if we have our, our little map up, but you can see the borders. Now imagine the description clockwise, which is going to be from the north to the south to the east to the west. The description is going to go counterclockwise. In order to appreciate Judah's inheritance, we have to remind ourselves again of why this is in the Bible and why it appears where it appears. Because it has something to do with the past and the present and the future. Like all of the Bible, and particularly in Joshua, the theme of the chapter is linked to the theme of the book, which is the faithfulness of God. Remember, God is at work in the Bible. When you read the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and you, know, you push forward into the book of Joshua, you'll see that the, the book begins to focus on particular people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph, and then the tribe of Judah, and then the family of David, which is going to produce the Messiah. All of this has to do with the faithfulness of God. And so, again, in the past, Moses passed the leadership to Joshua. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses blessed each tribe. And Judah would serve as the source of stability and strength for the nation. And much of Israel's future is going to be in this geographical region. And so, as you can imagine, its borders and its boundaries are going to serve as an important frame of reference for the children of Israel. And of course, the most important part of God's future plans for Israel is going to take place within the confines of its borders. It's going to be in Bethlehem where Jesus is going to be born. It's going to be in Jerusalem where most of the unfolding ministry of Jesus is going to take place. And again, as we go through the different sections, these particular geographical regions are going to be more and more important. So the chapter describes the land given to the people, their territory in verses 1 through 12, their towns in verses 20 through 63. And of course, the special promise of the hill country of Hebron to Caleb in verses 13 through 19. So in brief, we're going to see Caleb the fighter in verses 13 through 15. Caleb the father in verses 16 through 19. And as part of the reward for capturing Debir or Kiriath Sefer, Caleb is going to be given this as part of his Inheritance and Kiriath, Sefer, are, is a word that means the place of the book or the place of instruction. And so it's going to serve an important point, and it's also going to remind us that even at this time, these people are literate, they're capable of hearing, understanding, receiving instruction. As part of the reward for capturing Debir, Caleb is going to give his daughter Aksa in marriage to her cousin Othniel. And he is going to be 
the first judge of Israel after the book of Joshua. So, the tribe of Judah receives its inheritance. Now, again, you have to understand something. It isn't just a list of places and geography, although it is a list of places and geography. This is going to be their home. This is going to be their future. Some of you grew up in one place or you were born in one place and you moved to another. Imagine, and it's not going to take a whole lot of imagination for some of you to just think back to the place where you were born or think back to the place you were raised. And then at some time in your life, your family decided you're going to move. You're going to come and you're going to go somewhere else. You're going to come to Colorado and this is going to be your home. This is going to be the place where you're going to raise your children. This is the place that's going to form their formative years and direct their paths. This is part of what you have to begin to understand and appreciate. Judah is going to provide the homeland for the majority of the characters that are going to unfold in the story that's called the Bible. These borders and boundary lines might seem boring to you. But again, I just want to remind you of something. This is a type, a picture, a revelation of the faithfulness of God to the children of Israel in inheriting the promises that he said he would give to them. And of course, it becomes a type and a picture for you. Remember what I've already told you. We are Christians. We don't inherit a promised land. We have a promised Savior. Our inheritance is in Jesus. And so again, we return to this picture of God's faithfulness in giving the land to believers. God faithfully protects his people. God faithfully protects Abraham and Abraham's seed, Isaac, Jacob. You'll remember the children of Israel go into Egypt. They leave Egypt. They come to this particular place. And then God supernaturally and miraculously brings them to the place where they belong. It becomes a type and a picture of you. Where God takes you, preserves you, keeps you. Because he's moving you in the direction where you belong. God was faithful in bringing them to the land. And then in occupying the land. The big lesson for us as Christians is God is faithful to bring us to Jesus. And then cause us to occupy Christ. And we're going to have a few things to say about that a little bit later on. Now, I want to also remind you of something else. Even though this map doesn't show it. I don't know if we've got the other larger map. But in the larger map, if you go to the north, if you go to the south, if you go to the east, and you go to the west, I want to point something else out to you. Judah is surrounded, for the most part, not by friends, but by enemies. If you look... A little bit to the north, you'll see Aram and Ammon. You'll see Reuben and Benjamin and Edom to the south. 
Judah is going to be sandwiched between the two major superpowers of its time. In the north, Assyria. In the south, Egypt. Judah is placed in a position surrounded by dangerous neighbors. And so is the Christian. Now, like I said, to the east are the Moabites, to the south, the Edomites, to the southwest are the Amalekites, to the west are the Philistines. Even though you see it says Judah and Simeon, this is going to be the area that's going to be occupied to the north and to the south by the Philistines who are going to be a persistent problem. Even as you get into the reign of David and Solomon, the land was ideally suited for vineyards. This was a place of valleys and hills. This is the place where when the spies came into the land, they go into the valley and they cut a great big cluster of grapes because it's the land of milk and honey and fruit. Judah is the future source for the Messiah. And of course, Jesus is the man from Shiloh, the man who brings rest and peace. And so, again, when you think about that territory, that's what it, it begins with, a description of it in verses 1 through 12. And just very quickly when it says, so this was the lot of the tribe of the children of Judah according to their families. The border of Edom in the wilderness of Zin, you go southward, was the extreme southern boundary. If we have the of the map back up again, you can see if you go all the way south to the right, you'll see the water. That's the Dead Sea. And so the wilderness of Zin is south of Beersheba. And it's on the southern side of the ascent of Akrabim. Now, Akrabim may sound like real Hebrew to you. It means the Valley of the Scorpions, which if, if you said, hey, you know, your border is going to be the Valley of the Scorpions, what's your initial thought? I have a desert filled with scorpions. There's a wilderness, and it's a dry, arid, empty desert. Now, again, as you go through these borders to the north, excuse me, to the south, to the west, to the north and the east, it's going to change as the story of the Bible unfolds. They're going to take possession of certain lands and then they're going to relinquish possession of certain lands. Now remember what I've already told you about this type and this picture of the land. Remember the children of Israel are to occupy a land that's been promised by God, correct? Is this land already occupied? Are there people already there? Yes. Do they want to leave? No, they don't. When you become a Christian, is your mind and your heart and your life filled with things that aren't always conducive to Christianity and Jesus and the love of God? Are there things in our life that God speaks to us about and says, these things have to go and we know that they have to go and we address those issues and then sometimes we have to readdress the issue. Well, the same is true here because they're occupying the land 
But several of these places they're going to take and the people of Judah are going to conquer and then they're going to occupy. Now we look at Caleb the fighter in verses 13 through 15. Look as we again follow along in the text. It says, now to Caleb, the son of Jepuna, who we learned a lot about in chapter 14. He gave a share among the children of Judah according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kiriat Arba, which is Ebron. Arba was the father of Anak. The real reason why it was called Kiriat Anak, it means this was the land of the giants. This is the land that was occupied apparently by a a group of people or a tribal group of people who were enormous in size and strength and they were terrifying. Now remember in chapter 14, we were introduced to the faith of Caleb. And you'll remember that Caleb was determined to possess what God promised to him through Moses and now Joshua. Caleb's inheritance, even though the tribe of Judah is given this specific inheritance in that region that we've just talked about, Caleb, because of faith and faithfulness, is going to occupy a specific place. And again, remember the theme of the chapter. It's the faithfulness of God in keeping his promises to the children of Israel, but also the faithfulness of God in keeping his promise to Caleb. So Caleb in a very real sense, was possessing his possessions. In chapter 14, Caleb, you'll remember, he said, give me this mountain. Give me the place where the giants dwell. Give me the place where everyone else runs away and turns in fear. You give me the place that makes everyone afraid because of his faith. He is going to retain strength and faithfulness and he's going to occupy the land in the heart of the land. Now, again, I, I want to remind you of something. God has a plan and a purpose for these people in this place as the future's unfolding. The promises that are given to you in the Bible in Jesus aren't just platitudes they become promises so that you can walk into a future where your children and their children get to live a life that you could only dream about. And so now, Joshua says, by all means, according to the commandment of the Lord, take the territory that God has entrusted to you. You placed your feet in this place by faith. This is the place that God has allotted to you. This is the place where you're going to find rest. And again, it becomes a type and a picture. When you're reading of the Bible and the promises that are in the Bible of it's okay for you to take your place where you begin to open up the Bible and you begin to read it and you begin to understand what it means. Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak from there. Look, they're named Sheshai, Ahiman, Talmai, the children of Anak. In other words, here's Caleb in the land of the giants who has produced offspring who are in a place where they don't belong and Caleb, because of the faithfulness of God, 
calls on the faithfulness of God for his own strength and then fights the fight. You'll remember in chapter 14, Caleb said, perhaps the Lord will be with me. He wasn't expressing doubt. Rather, he was expressing humility. He wasn't saying, well, maybe the Lord will be with me, but maybe not. No, he's basically, because he says in chapter 14, I will drive them out. And he does exactly that. In other words, he addresses the, the giants that want to occupy the land that belongs to him. And that's the kind of honest opposition that we as Christians have to face. Because sometimes there's giants in our own life that we have to face. And we have to fight. And we have to drive them out. Caleb had faith in the word of God in the promise of God, in the presence of God. And so in verse 15, look what it says. Then he went up from there to the inhabitants of Debir. Formerly, the name of Debir was Kiriath Sefer. Caleb fights the enemy. He wages an unrelenting war against God's enemies. Caleb claimed his mountain. Now, I want you to think about this. Remember what I said about the old dude. He was 85 years old. He claims the mountain, and he always looks for higher ground. And he will not rest until all the territory that is, belongs to him becomes a part of his life. Now, this becomes an important lesson for each and every one of us. Because we become Christians, and sometimes we become content with that. Look, I'm going to heaven. I'm not going to hell. Um, I read my Bible. I go to church. I do this and that. But it never or rarely occurs to us that sometimes in those quiet moments when you're opening up your Bible and you're reading your Bible and you're beginning to understand something that God is speaking to you. He's speaking to you about your life and he's speaking to you about your future and he's speaking to you about your ministry and he's saying there could be so much more. There's higher ground that you can occupy. You don't have to just simply be content with what you think is second best or third best. And so Caleb demonstrates both strength in his person and strength in his character. He's willing to fight Israel's most dangerous enemies. He doesn't show jealousy or resentment because Joshua is the one that God puts in charge. Rather, Caleb could have quite easily, remember, chosen the path of comfort and convenience and ease. He could have said, look, I'm 85 all of the fight is out of me. But he is going to walk into a future full of strength. But it's more than that. Caleb, we see Caleb the fighter, and then we see Caleb the father. Look what it says in verse 16. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give Achai, or Aksa, my daughter, his wife, so Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, took it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, his wife. Now, think about what's happening. This is a group effort and a family effort. When he says, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and takes it, I will give Aksa my daughter. This was something that was 
predominant in the ancient world. And you're going to see it later on in the Bible where David is going to take Jebus or Jerusalem and he's going to offer a reward for the mighty men who are willing to do the difficult task of fighting the fight. But it also reminds us of something. Caleb in the occupation of the land, it's a family affair. In other words, he isn't the only one doing the fighting, but he is enlisting his family. His brother's son is going to accomplish this goal. And by the way, he's going to figure prominently in, in Israel's history. And in the next book, the book of Judges, he is going to emerge as the first uh, judge in the history of Israel. It says in verse 18, now, it was so when she came to him that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. Now, this daughter, Aksa, basically says to her father, you've been faithful and God has gifted you and rewarded you and I want you to reward me. And so guess what? She persuades him to give him a field. So she dismounted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, what is it that you wish? She answered, give me a blessing since you've given me land in the south. Give me also springs of water. Now I want you to think about this for just a moment. The lands in the south may have been a dowry for her, a bride price. And it's a desert. It's a wilderness. A desert doesn't do much good unless you have water to bring life to that desert. Some Bible teachers have seen in this a type and a picture of an inheritance of a faithful child. So there's several different dynamics that we could think about even as we look at this text. The first dynamic that we can look at is Caleb gets his reward. But he doesn't just simply own his reward, but he's willing to pass it off to a future generation. You're saved. God has saved you in Christ. God could raise up children, and who knows, but that, that your children are going to come to you and say, I want what you want. I want a savior. I want life. I want eternal life. And so this becomes a type and a picture, if you will, of passing on our heritage to the next generation. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Caleb is going to give his daughter land, and it's good. Caleb is going to give his daughter water in order to make that land productive. And that's good. But the most interesting thing that Caleb gives isn't the land or even the water. It's, he gives an example of faithfulness that his children and their children can follow. And so it would make sense that she would say, look, what good is it for me to have land unless I can have water? And again, some Bible teachers have seen in that a kind of an allegory where guess what? We're Christians and we have a Bible and we have a church um, and we have doctrine and we have teaching. But what good is it to possess a land but you don't have water in order to bring life to the, the land. And in and that I see a type and a picture almost of the Holy Spirit where we occupy Christ and we're thankful for all that Jesus does for us. But remember, Jesus said, if I go, I'm going to 
prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm going to send someone. I'm going to send the comforter, the Holy Spirit, and he will be in you and he, he will be with you and he will be in you. And the Holy Spirit, remember, becomes a type and a picture of rivers of liver, living water flowing from inside of us. And so, again, nothing is more precious than water when you live in a desert. And part of the point of Caleb, he's going to share with his children the choice things in the future generations. And it should awaken in your heart a willingness to share with your children and their children what's been given to you. And then now there's a list of the towns from, from verses 20 to 63. The cities of Judah are listed according to geographical region. And very quickly, I'm going to tell you the south in verses 20 through 32. The Shephelah, or the foothills, are described in verses 33 through 47. The hill country in verses 48 through 60. And then the wilderness. This is that that wilderness area that slopes down all the way to the Dead Sea. And I've been to Israel some 14 times. And if you ever leave Jerusalem and you go down into this wilderness, this is the wilderness area that later Jesus is going to be tempted in. But in verse 20, it says, This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Judah, according to their families. Now, I want you to think about this. There's over a hundred cities that are listed. It may not mean a whole lot to you. But this means that the tribal group of Judah are going to occupy lands that they didn't cultivate. They're going to have vineyards that, and trees that they never planted. They're going to live in houses that they never built. And so this is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Judah, according to their families. The cities at the limits of the tribe of the children of Judah toward the border of Edom. In the south, remember? That's where the border of the enemy is. There's Kabzil, Eder, Jagur, Kinah, Demona, Adada, Kedesh, Hatsor, Ithnan, Zith, Telim, Bialot, Hatsor, which we know is going to be one of the major strongholds um, that are captured, Hadata. Kiriot. That may not seem like a very important thing, but a New Testament figure is going to be from this particular area. His name? Judas. Have you ever heard of Judas Ishkiriot? This is where he's from. Ish means man. Kiriot is the town. Hetzron, which is Hatzor. Aman, Shema, Molodah. Hatsar, Gada, Heshmon, Bet Pelet, Hatsar Shul, Beersheba, Bizjotja. Now, Beersheba means the well of the oath. And that's going to be a city that many of you are going to be familiar with because if you're familiar with Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, if you remember the stories in, in, in Genesis, Beersheba is the place where The patriarchs spent a lot of time, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Bada, in verse 29, Ejim, Etzim, El Tolad, Chetzel, Chorma, Ziglag, 
Madmana, Sansana, verse 32, Leboath, Shelim, Ain, Rimon. All the cities are 29 with their villages. Now, in verse 32, we have a little bit of a problem. There are 38 locations listed. But then it says there's only 29 villages. So what do we do? What do we think about when we read this? Well, it may be that some of the locations were too small to receive the designation of city. I don't know if you've ever been to a place like in Wyoming or T-shirt Nebraska, or you go to a place in Colorado where the population is 17 people, and you go, you know, this doesn't really qualify as a town or a village or whatever. So it could be that some of the locations were too small to receive the designation of city. It may be that it was incorporated part of the territory that uh, belonged to the tribe of Simeon. We actually don't know the answer. In verse 33, it says, In the lowland, Eshtaol, Zorah, Ashna. Eshtaol is the place of the vineyards. Zona, Inganim, Tapua, Inam, Jarmud, Adulam, where there's caves, Sokot, Azeka. You go down to verse 36. Sha'arim, Adatim, Gedera, Gederotaim, 14 cities with their villages. And then again it lists it. Zinan, Hadasha, Migdal Gad, Dilian, Mitzpah, Joktil, Lakish, Botskat, Eglon. This is going to be a, a famous place where a future ruler is from as well. Kabon, Lamas, Kiflish, Gederot, Beth Dagon. That is the word of a Canaanite deity who is half fish and half human. So Beth Dagon means the place or the home of Dagon. So you can imagine these are places that were principally held by people who practiced idolatry and every kind of wickedness. And so it goes on. Nama, Makedah, 16 cities with their villages. Libna, Ether, Ashan, Jiptha, Ashna, Netzib, Kila, Akzib, Marisha, nine cities with their villages. Ekron with its towns and villages. From Ekron to the sea, all that lay near Ashdod with their villages. These are going to later become Philistine strongholds. And this is, again, one of the deep regrets of Joshua. He never literally secures the coastlines. From the Philistines. And these are, this is going to prove a problem when we enter into the book of Judges and we see the pernicious, persistent problems that they're going to encounter because they didn't deal with these people. Ashdod um, with its towns and villages, Gaza with its towns and villages. Now, I want you to understand something. When it's talking about these Philistine strongholds, Israel. And the people of Judah had the right to occupy them and possess them, even though they didn't really faithfully do it. As far as the brook of Egypt, which is 
the river to the north, and the great sea, that's the Mediterranean with its coastline, and in the mountain country, Shamir, Jatir, Soko, Dana, Kiryat Sana, which is Debir, Anab, Eshtemo, Anim, Goshen, Holan, Giloa, 11 cities with their villages, Arab, Duma, Eshein, Janum, Bet Tapua, Afeka, Humta, verse 54, Kiryat Arba, which is Hebron. And again, um, this is an important and prominent place in the scripture. In the time of Genesis, it was called Mamre. This is the place where Abraham gets a pre-incarnate visit from Jesus. This is the place where the Lord shows up. This is the place where Sarah is told she'll give birth to, to Isaac. Hebron will become the burial place of Abraham, the burial place of Sarah, the burial place of Isaac and Jacob and eventually Joseph. So you can imagine this is a land that's steeped in history and Zior, nine cities with their villages. Ma'on in verse 55, Carmel, which is all the way to the north, Ziph, Jutah, Jezreel, which is part of the valley, Jokdim, Zanoah, Cain, Gibeah, Timnah, ten cities with their villages, Halul, Betzur, Gedor, Marat, Bet Anot, El Koton, six cities with their villages, Kiriath Baal, which is Kiriath Jerim, and Reba, two cities with their villages. In the wilderness, Bet Arabah, Medin, Sekaka, Nibshan, the city of salt. Now, Nibshan, the city of salt, is an area that was along the coastal region of the Dead Sea. It's later going to be called. I know the answer to this. Can you, I hate it when I have a brain freeze like that. But it is, I'll have to just go look on the map. It is where the Dead Sea Scrolls, Qumran. This place is Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls will be found where later on in 1948, parchments will be discovered, where many of the books in the Bible, some of the oldest known fragments will, will come. So it was called the City of Salt. It would, it would later be changed to the name to Qumran. And in Gedi, in Gedi means the place or the spring of the kid. And this is going to be a place where David is going to hide out Later on, so the territories of Judah seem to have been over a hundred cities, and again, they seem to have been occupied with little or no resistance. And then you get this last terrible verse it says, As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Jebus, or the Jebusites, or the inhabitants of Jerusalem, are going to, again, occupy the most important city that features in the Bible. And so it ends with that sober reminder, Jerusalem is still a stronghold. It's still occupied by the enemy. 
they're not able to drive them out. When you read that, you should ask a question of the text. Why not? Clearly, remember, they already had the promise. God told Joshua that they were going to occupy their land and the enemy wasn't going to be able to stand before them. So why is this a problem? Was it a lack of faith? Was it a lack of strength? We're not told. But it prompts yet another question in our own life. What is it about our own life where God has said, I want this to go away. I I don't want this to be a part of your life. I don't want unbelief and doubt to be a part of your life. I don't want ongoing issues of sexual addiction and drug addictions and, and, and substance abuse. What is it about our life and our circumstance where we have what some people call besetting sins and they seem to constantly weigh us down and typically bring us to a place of, of where we're, it, it's a constant struggle. In Joshua chapter 11, remember we were given a recipe for success. Obey the commands of God. Reject the overtures of peace from the enemy. Abstain from idolatry. Don't worship false gods. Refuse to intermarry with the local population who are the object of judgment and wrath. Obey the Lord. Is it a lack of faith? Is it a lack of strength? Is it possibly something to do with both? But here's what we know. That the theme of this book, victorious Christian living, is still the theme. That the Bible is looking not for defeat, but for victory. And by the way, when you get to Joshua, or excuse me, the book of Judges, chapter 1, you're going to see a brief respite where Jebus is briefly taken. And then it's once again given over to the enemy. And it won't be taken again until one of the sons of Judah, David, captures the city and makes it his Capital. Now, by the way, Jerusalem was a city that's right on the border. The lower part of Jerusalem belongs to Judah. The upper part belonged to Benjamin. Now, it's interesting to me that after the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, it was held by enemy armies from the 2nd century, 3rd century, 4th century, 5th century, 6th century, until it was briefly held by a Christian ruler. And then it was taken by the Muslims, where the city was occupied by Muslims up until 1967. 50 years ago, a divided Jerusalem was united. But it was only united in name only. It was only united very briefly and then only politically. Because the Temple Mount to this 
day remains a divided city. And I'm going to suggest to you that there will come a time when Jerusalem will be Israel's permanent, undivided capital. And it will be the capital of the king, the son of David. So why does Joshua mention this? I think that Joshua's mentioning it to remind the reader that even though all of these things have happened, there's still a call for renewed courage and perseverance and steadfastness in embracing the inheritance of God. Now, I want you to understand something. At this point, does Joshua or the children of Israel have any idea what role that Jerusalem will play in the events that are going to unfold in Israel's future? They don't. Just like you. There might be something in your life and in your circumstances, in your family. You have no idea what God wants to do with your family, with your children, with your ministry, how the decisions that you're making right at this very moment are going to lead to a series of decisions that are going to unfold a future that God has ordained. Wearsby in his expository outlines, he closes this way. He says, quote, We overcome the enemy and claim the inheritance the same way as Caleb. Number one, we must be wholly yielded to the Lord. Number two, we must know his promises and believe them. Number three, we must keep heart and mind fixed on the inheritance. And number four, we must depend on the Lord to give us the victory. And then he says, thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we have an article uh, posted at at gotquestions.org. And if you have a chance, I want to, I hope that at some point you may go there and, and, and download the article. But um, I, I just wanted to just very briefly, quickly remind you. I wonder what I did with it. Oh, here it is. In the article at Got Questions, it says, What is our inheritance in Christ? The answer? The Bible is full of references to the inheritance believers have in Christ. Ephesians 1.11 says, In Christ we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Other passages that mention a believer's inheritance includes Colossians 3.24 and Hebrews 9.15. Our inheritance is, in a word, heaven. It is the sum total of all that God has promised us in salvation. Words related to inheritance in scripture are portion, heritage. 1 Peter 1.4 says, describes this inheritance further, saying that we have been born again into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. According to the Apostle Peter, our inheritance is distinguished by four important qualities. And I'm just going to give you the qualities real quick. Our inheritance in Christ 
imperishable. Our inheritance in Christ, unspoiled. Our inheritance in Christ, unfading. Our inheritance in Christ, reserved. In other words, you don't have to go to orbits. You don't have to go to Trivago. You don't have to go online and go, hey, I need to make my reservations now. You can't get there via the internet. The only way that you are going to be able to have your inheritance is because you have it in Jesus, which is imperishable, unspoiled, unfading, and reserved. We're going to have communion in just a moment. But uh, that's part of what we're going to do as we close out our service tonight. We're going to remind ourselves of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. We have been born again into an inheritance that can never perish. It can never spoil. It can never fade. It's kept in heaven for you. Your inheritance cannot be reclaimed, recovered, retaken by the enemy because your assurance is in Christ. So I'm going to have Carolyn come up. We're going to pray. I just would ask you just for a moment to, to, uh, to not partake of the elements until we have an opportunity um, to partake together. So here, Carolyn, here, let's just pray. And then we're going to, we're going to sing a song and we're going to take communion. If, if you need to go back and get the elements, now would be a good time to do that. Heavenly Father, we again, Lord, are so grateful for our inheritance. Lord, the reason why we get to have heaven is because we have heaven's king, Jesus. We have the sum and the substance. Jesus is our portion. Jesus is our heritage. Lord, these children of Israel are going to occupy a place of promise. But Lord, we occupy Christ. And so, Heavenly Father, again, we pray that we would make it our ambition to know him, to love him, to serve him, to submit to him, to listen to him, to walk with him, to obey him. Let's sing.